Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa idea in the 21st century. Make sure you have something to say. In this episode of the Iowa Idea podcast, I'm joined by Aaron Becker. Aaron is a writer, communications consultant, and storytelling expert. She founded and runs Beck's Communications, a consultancy that helps clients in a range of industries in the U.S. and Latin America use storytelling and effective communication principles to move people, sell products, and make change. She also runs a newsletter, The Storytelling Weekly, where she shares storytelling tips and analyzes culture high and low to help her readers learn how to tell great stories and achieve their strategic goals. She holds her MFA in writing for children and young adults from Vermont College of Fine Arts. She writes criticism, essays, poetry, and fiction, and has been published in outlets like Lambda Literary, Barrel House Reviews, Interstellar Flight Press, and more. Erin also heads up communications for digital literacy nonprofit right away. We explore Erin's journey as a writer and entrepreneur, what it's like to live abroad and struggling to accurately express yourself in another language and culture, and how writing can help us clarify our own ideas. I liked Erin's advice to think about the content before you think about the vehicle. I enjoyed Erin's perspectives on writing and storytelling. And it was an honor having her join me on the show. I thank her for sharing her time and insights. And I hope you enjoy the episode. Aaron, it is an absolute pleasure to have you here on the Iowa Idea podcast. Thanks so much for taking the time to join me. If you don't mind, for our guests, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, Matt, thanks for having me. It's great to be here today. Um, as you said, I'm Erin Becker. I'm a writer, a communications consultant, and a storytelling expert. I founded my consultancy, Beck's Communications, around seven years ago. And since then, I've been working with clients in the U.S. and Latin America in a really wide range of industries, helping them use storytelling and effective communications principles to move people, sell their products, you know, just achieve their goals. I also run a newsletter, The Storytelling Weekly, where I talk about storytelling tips, tell pretty random anecdotes, probably talk way too much about Taylor Swift and Thor Ragnarok and other things I love to fangirl about, but it's all in service of storytelling. And in addition to that, I'm the head of communications for Right Away, which is a digital literacy nonprofit founded last year to help people foster their digital self-expression skills, which has become even more important during the pandemic. Um, also last year, I graduated with my MFA in writing for young people um, from Vermont College of Fine Arts, and that was a big goal of mine. So really excited to have graduated. And now I'm shopping around my first novel for young people. And in addition to that, I write poetry, essays, and fiction. And as far as my relationship to Iowa, I was actually born in Minnesota, but I lived in Iowa from age three up until the end of high school. 
And so, um, and also a couple years during my early 20s as well. So Iowa is still very much home for me. And I think I'll definitely be like a Midwest girl my whole life. Thank you so much. Uh, and uh, a lot to dig in there. Uh, one one thing I didn't know uh, that you had a Minnesota connection as well. Do you do you remember where you lived in Minnesota? Yeah, I lived in Minneapolis. I don't really remember specifically <laughs> yeah. where. I know somewhere downtown. And then my parents moved out to the suburbs after I was born. And actually, for most of my post college life, I've lived abroad. But a lot of times when I'll visit home. They'll be going to Iowa, and then a lot of my extended family is still in Minnesota. So lots of very wintry Christmases up right. in up in Rochester, actually, is where most of them live. And you're in Chile right now. So what, uh, just out of curiosity, what's, what's your weather like this time of year? Uh, right now, so I'm in the south of Chile. It's sort of a Pacific Northwestern climate. So everyone's complaining about the heat right now, but it's probably like 75 degrees. <laughs> so not actually that hot, but definitely feeling privileged to have 75 and sunny in, in the middle of January. Oh, that's great. Uh, so want to talk about your, how did you get interested in uh, storytelling and, and writing? Um, that's a great question. I think I've always been interested in writing basically since I learned to write, I've been trying to write books and I have a couple, my, my parents downsized a few years ago. So I got all my childhood uh, stacks of papers, <laughs> um, that I now have to find a place to keep myself. But, um, I've been trying to write books since, since I was little and I would even draw a little, Caldecott and Newberry medals on the cover of them. So the confidence was not lacking even from a young age. But I think that um, really storytelling has emerged as an interest for me much later. I always knew that my writing skills were pretty good, but I didn't really understand storytelling in a deep way until I did the MFA and until I started focusing on writing for young people actually, because I think sometimes when you're writing for adults, you can get away a little bit with having very beautiful language or you know a really intriguing metaphor, but kids really want that story. They, they appreciate good craft as well, but um, you know it's all about the characters and the plot and really keeping them engaged. So I feel like a lot of what I've learned about storytelling is really in focusing on media for children. Thanks. Uh, yeah, I want to... Uh dive into uh, both writing and storytelling a little bit more. Uh, but uh, a couple things that you said in in your intro that I want to follow up on is uh, one was Thor Ragnarok. So <laughs> if you don't mind, let's nerd out about that a little bit. What is it about Ragnarok that you you really enjoy? Yeah, I really appreciated that installment. And I will say I'm not, I mean, I haven't seen the entire MCU. I'm not an expert. I can't get into the super, super specific things about that uh, very expansive world. But I will say that I appreciate Thor Ragnarok because it doesn't take itself seriously. I think a lot of superhero movies and um, fantasy literature, even though, you know, we're talking about people running around in costumes, we're talking about, um, really fantastical weaponry, um, but then it can end up taking itself very seriously and um, 
that idea of the sort of brooding superhero who's got the world on his shoulders. And I appreciate that Thor in Ragnarok is essentially like a golden retriever personality. <laughs> um, and there's so much Winnie bat banter. It's so colorful. Um, visually, I think it's a fantastic movie as well. So I just really appreciate that. Uh, it seemed like they were all having a lot of fun and it ended up being a great story too. Yeah, thanks. Because I, um, I'm a big fan of uh, Taika Waititi's work, and to, yeah. it, that so that that direction, I think, to, it it was a it was a fun ride. It 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 checked so many boxes, like for a summer blockbuster, but it didn't take itself too seriously. And uh, even the character that he voiced in the movie was, I thought, was just one of the funniest things I've oh, seen absolutely in a long time. hysterical yeah absolutely <laughs> hysterical <laughs> I tried to start a revolution but I didn't print enough pamphlets um yeah one of the best lines so I definitely agreed I think bringing bringing his sensibility to that world really worked very well so it'll be interesting to see moving forward as they're bringing in new directors whether there's there's more of that uh collaboration as well thanks yeah that's uh that movie is a uh, a favorite in our house, and I, I believe that everybody in the family has uh, kind of exhausted all of the MCU outlets <laughs> at our house. So we we do nerd out, but that one is probably our favorite one of of all the movies. Did you, by chance, uh, have you watched any of the Mandalorian? Uh, just the first couple episodes. I, I was trying to get into it. I think my my pandemic fare needs to be even lighter. I was feeling a little bit stressed out about baby Yoda. And I was like, okay, maybe in a couple of weeks. I, he's so cute. I got yeah. really worried about anything bad happening to him. Yeah, I was just going to say that Taika Waititi, you know, he's the, uh, he plays uh, an assassination droid. So he's in that first episode. He voices a character in that first episode. And then he directed one of the later episodes of season one, which uh, might've been, probably the best the best episode of, of season one interesting well i'm definitely going to circle back soon so I'll keep, I'll keep that in mind right on right on so let's talk a little bit more about storytelling uh, as you said it, it growing in importance but what is it about uh storytelling that you believe is important well, I think, I mean, coming back to this discussion we're having during during the pandemic, it's it's really struck me how our attention spans are pretty limited for most things right now. A lot of people have been talking about, man, it's hard to get through meetings. It's hard to sit through presentations for kids who are in school. It's hard to focus. Um, and then you sit down and you end up watching five episodes of The Mandalorian in one night, right? <laughs> and so I think... It's, it's not, um, it's more about what do we have attention for? And obviously that media is created to be entertaining. It's created so that you stick around and the autoplay just kind of flows on and there goes your evening. But um, I think beyond that, our brains really respond very well to story. Lisa Crone has a book, uh, Wired for Story, that a lot of writers love, but I think is really, um, is really a great text for people even outside the writing world as well because she talks about how story helped make us who we are as humans. The fact that we could understand threats and learn from other people's experiences and then repeat those stories onto other people 
made it so we know we knew which plants not to eat or you know where in the savanna to avoid because maybe there were big cats prowling at night and all these other things um that just became really meaningful to our success as a species so thinking of the fact that storytelling is a part of what makes me who makes us who we are as humans, I think, um, really drives home the point that it's a very effective way to communicate, whether you're writing a novel or whether you're writing um, ad copy for your website. Um, it really, it gets people attention and it's much more memorable than, than a bulleted list or, you know, a slide deck or something like that. Yeah, thank you. Because that, that, especially those last points too, I know that just a firm believer that yeah, that is humans are wired to uh, talk in stories, remembering stories, thinking stories, and not not wired to think in bulleted lists. And just how we could convey so much complex information in a very consumable way through storytelling. And so I, I loved hearing that. And if you don't mind for me, can you can you tell me who the the author was again that you referenced? Lisa Krohn, C-R-O-N. I believe that's how she um, pronounces her last name, but no, thank you. Yeah, because yeah, I uh, just so guests know that uh, periodically when you mention an author or a a book, I have to write it down because you're a little bit of a curator for me. Uh, we could we could like the best book I've read in a little while was uh, Why Fish Don't Exist, and that was from a direct recommendation from you. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. I, yeah, the, that by, by Lulu Miller and definitely one of the best books I read last year. And um, especially because of the MFA, I, I had to read tons of books. I think this year I'm going to calm down on that a little bit because I need a little bit of a break. Um, but I basically recommending books is like my love language to all my friends and colleagues and family. So I, I, have a blast when people actually take me up on that and read the books I recommend to them. Oh, that's great. Uh, let's talk about your MFA program a little bit. I'm curious from your perspective, uh, what basically, what was the promise of the MFA or the program going in? Like what resonated with you? And then like looking back, uh, how different do you feel about the program? Not, and, and I'm not looking for like, oh, they did this badly or, but like sometimes we, we go into something thinking we want something else and then we find new value in it after we go through the experience or reflect. But just kind of curious, what, what made you think you wanted to spend lots of valuable time and energy in an MFA program and, and what you took away from it? Yeah, that's a really great question because I think it's something that a lot of writers ask. The programs, they're, they're time consuming, um, it can be expensive, and there's not like it's not like some other degrees where there's definitely an ROI from a financial perspective or even necessarily from a career perspective. You can teach because it's a terminal degree, but um, a lot of people I know, including myself, really went into it because of craft. I had been writing novels since 2012 or so. Um, and I, I started the program in 2018 and I, I hadn't yet published anything. And I'd gotten to a point where I felt like I'd gotten as far as I could on my own. I'd read all the craft books. I'd, I'd, 
had this stack of manuscripts I worked on it. I'd actually signed with a literary agent, um, but I, I hadn't yet met my goals professionally or really where I wanted to be at um, as far as the words on the page. And so I felt ready for that outside structure and support of being in a program. And the cool thing about Vermont College of Fine Arts is that the programs are low residency and their philosophy is that you stay integrated in your daily life with your family, living where you are, working where you are. And then the uh, program is something that goes on top of that. So it's around 25 hours a week of work. So it is feasible that you could do that with a full-time job, difficult, but um, they know that for a lot of artists, you're gonna have to have your day job alongside that artistic practice. And so in addition to helping you um, from a craft perspective, and in addition to becoming part of a community, because that's the other thing, it's a really tight-knit community, you're also learning how to integrate your artistic practice into your day-to-day -day life. And for me, that was very valuable. And in addition to the work that you do from home during the semester, in January and in July of every year, we would spend around 10 days on campus in Vermont. Um, and that that time was really, really great. It's sort of a, a mixture of, I don't know, summer camp and an artist residency and all your favorite classes in college just rolled into one and being with other writers 24 seven. Obviously now that's happening virtually. So yeah. for my last residency, that was virtual as well back in July. But um, so I felt like I, I went into the program wanting to get better at writing, which I definitely did. It feels like day and night as far as how I was writing when I went in and came out. But the part that was kind of unexpected was that I feel like I, I totally revolutionized the way I think about the work I'm doing as well. Um, because writing for young people is a really specific thing. And I was writing for young people because the story ideas that came to me were stories for young people. But beyond that, I now think a lot more deeply about what does it mean to write one of those books that a kid is gonna read at age 11 and is maybe then gonna stick in their brain for a long time because that's what happens when you read something when you're 11 years old, right? And sort of honoring, honoring, uh, young readers and everything that I do. So I've, I've begun thinking a lot more deeply about that as well. Thanks. Uh, so uh, a couple things about craft that I'm curious about is um, after going through the program uh, that it either introduced something new or reinforced what you were doing, but do you have a day-to-day -day, uh, rhythm or practice uh, when it comes to your writing that you try to follow? I would like to. Um, I think a lot of, probably a lot of people's routines are in a bit of upheaval now with the pandemic. Even though I was already working from home, it's definitely different now that um, it seems like half the world is working from home as well. Right. Um, so as far as what time people are sending emails and different things, everything feels a little different still. But it does depend whether I'm working on um, drafting or revising. When I'm drafting, I really like to set, a, set aside that 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. time, which seems to me when my brain works the best. Um, 
for revising, it kind of depends because I do feel like it's a little bit easier for me to put on that revision hat um, at any time of day. So it sort of depends what work I'm doing for clients and um, what the nature of that is, what time meetings are scheduled, et cetera. Did you, um, and then did anything change from like an insight that you had from, from the program, either from an instructor or from somebody in your cohort that, oh, that, that's, that's a breakthrough for me. That's, that's something I'm going to incorporate into my routine. I think something that I really took away from the program that I've been thinking a lot about now is that any, any writing advice, any process, any, anything that someone says, yes, you have to do it this way. You really need to look at how your own creativity and process works and whether that works for you. Um, so I know you like to talk a lot about mental models, and this is something I've been thinking about. The way that writers think about their work varies a lot from one person to the other. So we would have um, faculty members who would say, oh, I'm all about that, um, you know, that superhero structure. What's the character's core wound? What's their goal? Who's the villain? What are the you know, cronies that you need to knock out along the way before you get to the big bad, almost like yeah. it's like a video game and you're right. hitting these really specific narrative points. And then we would have other instructors who say, none, none of that makes any sense to me. You know, I just think about the character and I start writing. And so even the way you visualize that story world in your mind, even the way, you know, when you think of the narrative structure, does it look like that classic um, you know, ascending plot line to the climax and then the denouement that we've learned about in school, or is it maybe a spiral or is it something else altogether? Um, so you need to really think about how the story works in your brain and then you can try new things, but feel free to rapidly discard them if yeah. that doesn't work for your own process. And I think that's, that's something very powerful because a lot of writers will say you have to write every day to be a writer. And I don't, actually like writing every day like I like to make sure I have at least one day a week totally off and I just that's what works for me and that's just as legitimate no I uh, thank you very much I appreciate that so hearing that I almost uh, I'm equating that to some like physical fitness uh like <laughs> you need a recovery day to so that you don't yeah. get burned out yeah for me at least that's really important I was um in my early 20s, I was working full time as an English teacher at a school in Santiago. And that job was probably one of the most exhausting jobs I've ever had being in, in classrooms with seventh and eighth graders all, all day, all week. And then I would write on the weekends because that was the only time I had. And I just remember being so tired all the time. And so now I feel really fortunate to be in a place in my career um, where I can control my time a little bit more. I'm not teaching anymore, although eventually I would love to teach writing specifically again, but um, it feels like such a luxury to have that day where I don't do any work and I, I try and guard it and keep it as precious as possible when I can. Yeah, thanks. Because I know from a few different uh, authors that I've read, right when they're talking about the craft of writing and from different styles, um, even the... Like, you would reference the writing every day or doing like morning pages, like the first thing when you, you get up. And uh, I was even uh, Scott Dicker's 
he has a series called uh, like how to write uh, funny, how to write funnier, how to write funniest. And it just like the craft of uh, writing funny stories. Right. And he, I, I believe he was the original editor for the onion. He was part of the, the early onion team. Uh, and I appreciate the way he's digging into that, but maybe I'm just not uh, tough enough. Right. But morning pages is a really hard routine when you have, different people in your house on different sleep schedules and you have pets that need to get out and do things like like really what constitutes a morning page in my, in my head right because if if I'm already yeah if I have to get up and start making breakfast for a kid or at least supervise that they're doing it and the dog needs to go out or go for a walk or uh the cat just coughed up a hairball in the morning like mo- morning is a I don't know it's a war zone sometimes so I can't morning. I can't see it being a like a <laughs> Time to do free writing and then other like angry rant about hairballs. Well, I think also it seems like everyone wants you to do everything in the morning, right? It's like, well, if you're going to exercise, exercise in the morning. If you want to start writing, write those 500 words before breakfast. Meditate in the morning, definitely. And then, you know, take the the pause for your self-care ritual. I, I think that, yeah, there's a lot of pressure to do a lot of things in the morning. And I I would say... It's really about what works for you. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so I uh, wanted to dig in a little bit too about uh, with your your craft, your approach, uh, and you know something I, I love to dig in with creatives is just do, one, do you ever feel stuck? Um, and how do you get unstuck? Yeah, I think one thing that works really well for me, and this goes for my own writing, as well as when I'm working on something for a client, I'll use a timer. Actually, I have one right here on my desk. So it's just a normal little kitchen timer that I'm holding up for for the audio audience. And um, I'll do, I'll put 15 minutes and then I'll do some brainstorming. And so... This works really well, you know, if I need to come up with a, a snappy slogan for, for a marketing campaign, or if I'm trying to figure out uh, a solution to a tricky moment in a scene that's not quite working right. Um, ideally, um, it's either not lifting your fingers off the keyboard, or if you're writing by hand, just keeping it flowing and, um, What's her name? I have it here. Linda Berry, who's a a great person for creativity tips, will actually have people just, even if there's nothing coming up in your brain, just literally keep writing like nonsense words or nothing or just keep that pen flowing. And it actually ends up untapping uh, a lot of really creative ideas. And I'll find that by the time I get maybe two thirds of the way through that list, I'll start coming up with something that that feels unique, that feels quite a bit more original. Um, and that's usually a way to get really good ideas. Or at least then you're not staring at a blank page and you have right. something to work with. And for me, once I have those words on the page, it feels like I can start sculpting and molding. And then it's a lot easier to get motivated to move forward from there. Cool. Yeah, a couple things there that, uh, made me think of one what that that blank page element um so the first interview with the, uh, that i had for the podcast was with alex Deason. so he's a 
songwriter uh, and been in multiple bands, right? And then and then came to Iowa City to to go to the workshop. Uh, and he said the best piece of advice he had from it was from Ethan Kanan was uh, going to bed. Don't don't go to bed with everything finished uh, because then you have something to wake up to do, right? Like so that when when you start your writing routine, and so I'm I'm not trying to be overly specific, right? Because I just railed against morning pages but like when you <laughs> when you get ready to go there there's something waiting for you rather than feeling like you have to finish it before you go to bed uh and he said that's really helped his his writing style is from a like just productivity perspective yeah that that makes a lot of sense to me and and definitely resonates i uh, i think sometimes also I'll go, I'll go through phases occasionally where I have a, a lot of work with clients. And so I'll be more distant from my own creative work. But at BCFA, we have a, a listserv that's called Poetry Fridays. And someone will send along a prompt every Friday. And the idea is that you just take five minutes and write a poem based on that prompt. It's totally optional. Um, yeah. Not a part of coursework or anything like that. But I heard one classmate describe it as when you when you leave the tap dripping to keep the pipes from freezing in the winter. Just that even if that five minutes is all you write that week, you still kind of have that flow. Um, and I think that can also be a really good way to get started to in the morning or whatever you're writing, do some small exercise like that low stakes, five minutes, no one's going to read it. Or I also have a I, I like to translate things sometimes. So I have a, a song that's in Spanish that I really like that I've just been kind of like popping in and out and I'll translate a few lines and then I'll go back and then I'll leave it for a couple of months and then I'll come back. So just have something like that that's just for me that gets my creative gears going when I'm, when I'm stuck on my main project. And occasionally those side projects can end up being uh, a main project down the line. If you, right. if you keep going to it over and over and over again, sometimes that's the book you should actually be writing or at, that's the endeavor you should actually be working on. Cool. Um, I don't know if this would be valuable for you, but uh, a book that I thought was great that was released in the past year, uh, Jeff Tweedy from Wilco, uh, he had a book called How to Write One Song. And he kind of like would break down his songwriting uh exercises that he uses or things to keep him going and just what you had said about the the poetry prompt and kind of the the pipe is you know, just some of these things to just keep things going and almost like try to remove the inner critic but different techniques to just even start to get words on paper and play with and um found found them to be uh really helpful from a uh, just a, a creativity and writing standpoint yeah, I will definitely check that out because I I love music. I used to play music when I was a kid, but I don't consider myself a musician um, in like the sense of yeah. just having that essence. And I'm so fascinated by the way a song gets written. It's, it seems like this entirely mysterious thing to me. Um, so I love, for example, the podcast Song Exploder or other things oh, that yeah. kind of explore that. I'm just... I, every time I listen to it, I just marvel at the songwriter's processes because it, it, it seems really magical to me. Um, and I think 
sometimes hearing about processes that are totally different from your own or in a different medium can be okay. Even if I, I really am not going to understand that or ever be able to do that, it's so fascinating to, to learn about. Yeah, I, I agree. I think uh, for me on the design side, that is, it's incredibly important for designers to dig in and tap into other systems to see how things work because I, and that system could be another language. Uh, it can be other other hobbies or crafts, but I feel like it it back to the mental models. It gives you it expands the mental models you might have for oh, this is a problem of blank. Here's how it's handled in theater. Here's how it's handled by beekeepers. Right, different way that you it really gives right. just gives you more tools at your toolkit to try to understand things. And so I, yeah, I love seeing how other obviously because I'm pretty much building a podcast. I love <laughs> understanding how different craftspeople. Uh, you know, approach their craft and understand things. On the songwriting front, though, if you're interested, uh, this was recommended to me by by a friend. Uh, I believe it's called "It Begins with a Song." Uh, so it's about songwriting in Nashville, and they investigate and talk to different songwriters about about their process. And uh, the one caveat is, I believe it was produced by the city of Nashville or like the the Visitors Bureau of Nashville. <laughs> get people to go there or get songwriters to go there but the the content itself was really interesting and and i think some of the things that were uh fascinating for me is uh sometimes names that of people you don't know but they wrote songs for some of the biggest names in the business and you know just how that's part of the industry so it, it was interesting and then um also that there's like for, you know, on the business side, we get RFPs, right? Here's a company that needs help. Here's what they're looking for. And I didn't realize that uh, a lot of labels will throw basically the equivalent of an RFP out. Uh, we, we have an artist that's looking for a song like the end. So there are songwriters that just scour like the, almost like these call sheets and see if they have a song that fits or that they might write that. But it was, it was interesting seeing the amount of collaboration and different forms of process that folks have uh, to produce these. So if, if you have time, it, it might be interesting to you. Yeah, that does sound really fascinating. And you're right that you can kind of steal approaches or strategies from completely disparate industries and, and try to apply it to your own. I remember, I, I think it was an episode of Song Explorer where one artist was talking about okay, you know, things were too easy on this instrument for me. So I switched to one I couldn't play quite as well to just challenge myself and see what would happen. And I was thinking like, what's the equivalent of that? You know, is that like me telling a client, okay, no more press releases. We're, we're gonna try and do this other thing when, when, when you have to get information out there or, uh, you know, what that would look like in my own work. Do you switch from poetry to prose? Um, it's just, it's, thinking about how to apply those same strategies, the same creative constraints and um, yeah, and really interesting things can come of it. Do you have any uh, card decks? Uh, I'm, I'm a fan of uh, a few, like um, Brian Eno has one on creativity. And so it's mostly coming from song production, uh, but I've seen them from a couple different design studios as well. And it's basically where somebody's collected anywhere from 50 to a hundred like tips or prompts. And uh, if you're feeling stuck, you just like reach in, grab one and see if it unlocks something. Cause like you said, like the comfort discomfort or adding a constraint, right? This, it, this instrument's too easy for me. So I'm going to do something else. And like, you know, 
I think Eno, like one of the cards, make it smaller. And they're really abstract. So what would it be to make smaller or what will I make smaller or, um, you know, thinking about things from a different perspective. I find, I find those helpful. I don't know if you've used any of those. Oh, that's really interesting. I haven't, I haven't used any card decks, but I do like Linda Berry has a lot of yeah. exercises like that as well. Or sometimes for a while I was doing a, just those five minute poetry exercise series where I, I went to Wikipedia and I would click random page and I would just let my eyes land on the first sentence that I saw. And then I would have to write a poem with that yeah. sentence as the first slide. And I do, I did things like that. They would just be totally random. Half of them are like planets that are in some distant galaxy that has a Wikipedia page, but that <laughs> it basically is just a number. But um, I, I, I really like doing things like that. And nine times out of 10, it just sort of gets you started and then you move on. But occasionally it will, it will be something that you can then use. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, I apologize because there was, there was something else about your going to Wikipedia that I thought was, uh, but you, so how do you, how do you pick the first, the first destination for, for the page? So on the on the left hand sidebar, and this is not trying to be an advertisement for Wikipedia because it's kind of a problematic website. But um, on the left hand sidebar, there is a link that's random article or random page, okay. and so I would click on that, and then I would just kind of let my eyes fall on scrolling on the screen somewhere. Yeah. So now both you and I have. Uh, have worked in and do work for uh, corporate clients. And uh, just as you were talking about some of these constraints and you know, that you thinking about uh, a, a young reader and uh, one of my college jobs, I, I used to be a, a camp counselor for, uh, for young kids at a summer camp, right? At K through two. And I was just thinking about, as you're talking about some of these things, how a constraint could actually be like a fun challenge and sometimes like how people get into it, but at a constraint in a corporate meeting and just a bunch of adults groaning that we're making things hard. I'm, I'm finding like, just did what, what happens from our, our creative arc as a human that sometimes we love, we, it's easy for us to make up and embrace ideas at all of a sudden at a challenge, like a constraint uh, kids roll with it, but bring it in the middle of a corporation and you got a bunch of like groaning middle-agers. Yeah, it's a, that's an interesting point. I wonder if some of it has to do with just the mentality of being a kid. Their whole, their whole lives are constraints, I think. And as an adult, maybe you at least have the idea or expectation that you have some autonomy <laughs> and freedom. And so I think that, um, maybe a creative constraint can feel a little bit like a, like a roadblock when you're an adult, but when you're a kid, you're, you're kind of just used to rolling with the punches, I think in a lot of ways. Yeah. Cause I, uh, that's just from a design perspective is where I've, I've seen super creative output from my design teams is uh, all of a sudden change things up may, and, and, and make sure that we we add constraints to something to make it more challenging. Uh, and I, I don't, I don't know. For me, maybe it's some people are wired differently too, right? That it's just okay. This is exciting. This is a puzzle to solve. And other people are like, you know, I took this job for predictability. I don't, <laughs> I don't need this nonsense. 
Yeah, well, I think that also comes down to it's a it's a question of leadership and um, you know thinking about in the storytelling work I do with my clients, one of the main ways you can use a story in your professional life is to inspire your team, right? And so thinking about oh, what's a more inspiring story than prevailing against the odds, right? So I think if, if that can be framed as, okay, we have these obstacles, we have these roadblocks, it's down to the wire, but we're gonna do this, uh, that can end up sounding a lot more exciting. And then, you know, positioning your team as the hero of that story that that's going to prevail against all those odds, right? But um, if it's, oh no, another problem, uh, that, that can end up kind of that, that spiral into despair feeling can, yeah. can definitely start arriving. So what was, uh, going back, uh, thinking about uh, young Aaron in Iowa, what was the most inspiring book you read? What, what was something that you think really like, maybe, maybe like uh, catapulted you on this path? That's a very difficult question to ask someone who's trying to write for kids. Um, I actually had to, not had to, was happy to revisit a lot of my um, childhood favorites throughout the MFA. Yeah. And some of them held up and some of them really didn't, which, which was interesting to go back to. Um, a book that I revisited during my MFA that I loved as a kid and still love now is uh, From the Mixed Up Files of Mrs. Baisley Frankweiler by E.L. Konigsberg. And it's really interesting to think about because I'd never been to New York City. I'd, I'd never been in a, in a museum that large, but something really uh, spoke to me about this little girl running away from home and living in a museum. And when I revisited it, I hadn't realized it's actually a framed narrative. Um, and so it's sort of told from the perspective of an adult, which I didn't pick up on right. at all when I was a kid. But I think the level of um, independence that she has in that story is, is really alluring to a kid. So the idea that you're kind of just living this life in, in this beautiful place with all this art all on your own and and she kind of makes it work. And I remember really, really loving that and really hoping that I would get to go to New York City one day. Oh, that's great. Uh, if you don't mind, was there one that was almost just fell really flat that you were surprised like when you revisited that, oh, that was so good when I was 10, 11, 12? Yeah, um, there were a lot, but I think that, and, and some of it comes down to their, their books written for kids. And I think adults can, hundred percent read and enjoy books written for kids but they're gonna they're gonna speak to you differently when you're a young reader and when you're an adult and probably different books are gonna speak to you at different points in your life um, but probably my favorite book when I was a kid was A Wrinkle in Time by Madeline Langle and I still yeah. think she's a fascinating figure a fascinating writer but I found going back to it it was a little bit too ideas driven for me it felt a little bit too overtly philosophical and almost trying to teach a message. Um, and as a kid, I just thought that Miss What's It, Miss Who, I, I was so fascinated by those characters and by the idea of, of traveling through universes and traveling through time that I didn't, um, I didn't really pay attention to whether it was didactic or not. I just yeah. thought this, thought the world was interesting, but as an adult looking at it from a craft perspective, I felt, I felt it was maybe a, a little preachy at places and um, 
didn't quite achieve what, what I thought it did when I was a kid. Thanks. One of the topics that I like to dig into as well with, with guests is the notion of advice. And so this can go in lots of different directions, but um, sometimes either what's interesting advice from a mentor that you had, uh, right, that maybe it's something that sticks with you or you continue to unpack uh, as you go through life, or what's advice that you wish you would have received uh, as a kid? And, uh, you know, like we... We've, we've discussed before, you know, Austin Cleon still like an artist when when you're giving advice, you're usually talking to your younger self. So if you either want to talk about good advice you received advice you wish you would have had or advice that you have for folks listening. I think the maybe the best advice I ever received was actually from my flute teacher when I like I said, I was a musician back in, in middle school and high school and I, I go back to this all the time because um, I think many of us like to plan. We like to figure out what's going to happen a year from now and, and make the absolute right decision based on that and never feel like we're going to make any mistakes or have any regrets. And she said to me, just do the best you can with the information you have at the time. And that stuck in my head. And I know it's classic advice, but um, I remember when she told me that I was, I was in high school, I was driving to her house for my flute lesson and I had just broken up with uh, someone I've been dating at the time. And I was really sad about it. And a song came on the radio and I was crying. And so I got to my flute lesson and I was crying, which she seemed totally unfazed by. So I think there were probably lots of, high schoolers who showed up at their flute lesson crying <laughs> because such is life when you're an adolescent. And right. so she said, okay, we're, today we're not going to do a flute lesson. We're just going to talk. I think she got some cookies and something warm to drink. And we just chatted about life. And I remember she told me that. And I was saying, I don't know if it was the right decision, you know, like high school bromance stuff. And yeah, yeah. she said, you know, we do the best we can with the information we have at the time. And that, that spoke to me then, and I've thought about it a lot since. And I think now that we're in a time of so much uncertainty, I really take a lot of solace in those words. And yeah, yeah. you only know what you know, and you have to make the best decision. And I found that actually, it usually works out pretty well. I don't find myself looking back and saying, man, if only I'd known what I know now, because you have a lot of grace with your former self. And so I think as long as you do the best you can at the time, everything's going to turn out okay. That That's great. And uh, uh, well, sorry that, you know, that you were crying, but a heartwarming story <laughs> from the, the, the flute teacher like, to recognize that. I think, you know, how, if we just had a little bit more of that, right? People just taking a little time out and changing a pattern here and there to, to look after somebody's emotions, I think would be great. Yeah. And I mean, looking back, the fact that that's a, that's advice that stuck with me all these years. It was probably more important than whatever like scale I was going to learn that day or anything. So <laughs> smart lady for sure. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's great. Uh, Aaron, was there anything that we, we didn't talk about today that you thought, you know, you're, you're jumping on this, this podcast from half a world away that <laughs> you thought you might talk about? Yeah, I will say, I mean, we, we talked a lot about the craft of writing in, in sort of an esoteric sense. And um, 
something I think about a lot is the fact that, you know, when people find out I'm a writer, I work in communications, um, they'll kind of sidle up alongside me and start confessing their fears and insecurities about their own writing. And I ha I hadn't realized how many, you know, adults in the working world where many of us have to write very frequently in our professions, regardless of what you work in, feel really insecure about expressing themselves, whether that's an email or, you know, if they need to write something for work, if they need to work in a presentation. So I would just say that's normal. I think, um, I mean, even writers are really insecure about writing, but um, don't feel like it's this secret shame if you're if you don't feel like you can express yourself as well as you want to, I think everyone feels that way. And um, just really practical tips. If you're already thinking about it and paying attention to the words you're putting on the page, that's a huge step. And then something else uh, that I think anyone can put into practice in their day-to-day -day life right away, just take a second and read whatever you wrote out loud. And then whatever um, junctures in those sentences you kind of trip over when you're talking are usually the places where you can delete a word or um, where you can put a period and start a new sentence and that already is going to make a huge difference so that's just something I like to share with people because I have realized over the year that it's it's a concern a lot of people have that they don't talk about because they think they're just supposed to be perfect at writing because yeah. they went to school. And, and it's not always the case. It's, it's, it's a skill like anything else that with practice, you can get better and you can feel more confident. So when people come up to you, do you ever say, no, I said writer, not therapist. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, it's, 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 it is interesting. It is interesting that people feel compelled to talk about that, but, but I don't mind because I'm so passionate about it that I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not licensed to give therapy, yeah. but I'm happy to talk about writing whenever people want. And I think that kind of that former teacher in me really, really enjoys, you know, anytime I can help people feel a little bit more comfortable and confident in their writing. I think that that just feels really great. So happy to provide those free unlicensed therapy sessions. And you are doing, uh, you you send out a newsletter uh, about you know, communication and writing. Uh, how can people sign up for that? Yeah, they can find the, it's called the Storytelling Weekly. It comes out every Thursday and it's free. And you can sign up at aaronbecker.substack.com. And also uh, there's links to all my social channels and also to sign up for the newsletter and find out more about my communications consulting and my storytelling workshops and all of my work at aaronbecker.me. Right on. And I'll make sure to have, have links in the, in the description, but I, I, I really enjoy your newsletter. And so I, I, and I thought just as we were talking about people looking for help with writing and I know I, I, I think and talk in broad strokes without much structure to hold it up. Uh, but the communication side, I, you know, because when we've worked together, I know from design set, I'll talk about wayfinding being a big issue for frustration. If we don't know where we're going, right? Where are we? Where are we going? It can be frustrating, whether that's in a digital platform or just in life. Uh, but another another theme for me is the personal frustration that humans have when they can't express or communicate themselves, com communicate clearly. And like for me, I see it in see it in toddlers, right? When they're on the cusp that they're 
their brains can process more information than they can share. And they get so frustrated and go to later side of our arc in life and uh, stroke victims, but the frustration that you see when the ways that they used to be able to communicate and can't effectively even express needs or be an advocate or even just share an I love you with somebody. But right, I think there's there is something that to what you've said is like this deep need if an anxiety about not being able to communicate well um, and and express yourself and then account for all the noise from our our inner critics, our mental, you know, the mental things going on here to how a message gets out and how it's received. But I uh as I made the therapist joke, though, in all honesty, I think that you could, I mean, I can see why this is like a deep seated uh, human, like I'm worried about how do I communicate? Am I, am I sharing the message as closely as I have it in my head, which quite often people don't even have it clear in their head. Right. And that's another thing that I've found in like writing and reading it, just go through it again. Is this because even, even that act almost clarifies your own thinking on something let exactly. alone is it is it something somebody can understand i don't know if that's making sense I, or it is making sense and i hadn't made that connection between language acquisition and anxiety around being able to communicate but i think one of the reasons i'm very empathetic to people who are having these struggles in is through living abroad when i first came to chile i could sort of speak Spanish, but not really. And so my day-to-day life was really deeply affected by just not being able to communicate myself in whether that was going to the store and needing to buy something and not knowing how to, (laughs) having to explain it with the, you know, the really limited Spanish vocabulary I did have, because I just didn't know that one word. Or um, even in social settings, you feel like you can't really get your personality across if you can't choose those words carefully in the same way that you would in your own language. Um, and so I think I, re- I really feel for people who feel like they can't quite communicate the way that they want to or can't get their point across. And what you said about having your ideas clear is really important. Um, and that is something if I could travel back in time and talk to my former self when I was just kind of emerging in my own writing is, well, make sure you have something to say first and then start writing. You know, think about the content before you think about the vehicle for that content. And I, th- I think a lot of people who, who kind of trip themselves up or are writing in circles is because they don't quite have the idea clear. And you can, depending how your brain works, you know, you can think and think and think before you start writing. Or like you said, you can start writing and then sometimes those ideas and that clarity will emerge during the writing process as right. well. So, and selfishly, uh, one thing that brings me great joy in the world is idiomatic expressions and like just here. So I'm kind of curious, like, uh, are there any interesting phrases living in Chile that you like that describe a conundrum or something that you've picked up that you could share? So like when I think about like in, in, in English, sometimes when something's uh, falling apart, right? You might say something, you know, somebody went ass over tea kettle or something went pear-shaped, but there's something about idiomatic expressions that I think provide a, some interesting color and insight to cultures, but I wasn't sure if there are any in the Spanish language specific to Chile that you've picked up living there. Um, 
some that caught my attention initially were the ones that were just a little bit different from ours. You know, so we say a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush and they say a bird in the hand is worth a thousand flying. So I was like, wow, that's like, you're really upping the stakes there. (laughs) Um, This this is an inflated bird currency here. (laughs) This is an inflated bird currency. What is going on? Um, And then in Chile specifically, they, I, you know, I can't, I can't speak. I, I lived in Spain for a little bit as well, but, um, you know, have only spent much briefer periods of time in other countries, but I, I've noticed they use a lot of animal expressions here and it's not so much full full on idioms, but just here and there, um, things about hogs and things about, uh, horses. And it is a very rural culture, especially where I am. And so I guess that's just reflected in the language as far as what was around yeah. when people were, when people were kind of inventing these phrases <laughs> and, and Chileans are just geniuses at wordplay, really, really clever. Now you, you see it in, in memes actually, but there's a lot of interesting, um, a lot of interesting just, uh, sayings and things people do with language. And I think that's also reflected in the fact that there's a very strong tradition of poetry here with Gabriela Mistral and Paolo Neruda and uh, lots of other figures who have been just huge in, in Spanish literature. And so I think that it is interesting to see that relationship between how people talk day to day and then what um, what's happening in, in the culture. Oh, that's great. Aaron, thank you so much for joining me. It was an honor having you on the podcast, and I always love when we have an opportunity to to catch up. So thanks so much for, for joining me. Yeah, I was really glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me, and it was a lot of fun.